0: Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Hundreds of thousands of displaced people sought refuge in Europe in 2015, most of them fleeing war-torn homelands in what was the greatest human displacement in Europe since World War II. And the global relief system failed. In her new book, all Else Failed, the unlikely volunteers at the heart of the migrant aid crisis. Dana Sachs, a journalist and the co founder of Humanity Now, Direct Refugee Relief, tells the story of the volunteers who stepped forward to help. It's published by Bellevue Literary Press and brings Dana Sachs to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Haven't migrant crises become a regular part of modern history? The U.S. is currently experiencing one along uh, its southern border. There's another major one that's been caused by the war in Ukraine. How was the situation in 2015 that you write about in this book different?
1: Well, what was happening in um, Greece at that time was was part of a movement of people into Europe that was, as you said in your introduction, the largest um, movement of people in Europe since the end of World War II. And Europe was unprepared. I mean, they had been keeping an eye on movements of people in other places, but suddenly there were you know, more than a million people coming through in 2015, mostly through Greece, um, also through Italy, um, crossing the Mediterranean and then moving north in whatever ways they could. And I would say Europe kind of freaked out.
0: Well, how can you be prepared for 800,000 refugees arriving from Africa and Asia? trying to find places to stay throughout europe
1: well i mean i guess you could talk about it on different levels if you talk about it on the individual level of somebody watching this crisis develop on the television yeah right suddenly all these people show up and you're kind of shocked but on a political or governmental level this should not have been a shock because the wars in the middle east and the you know, political and climate crisis situations in Africa and other places had been going on for a while. And Europe had never really done anything to prepare for what was probably going to happen, which was that people would find a way to get somewhere safe and the safest place would be Europe.
0: You focus mostly on Greece, but you did mention Italy. Isn't Sicily as close to the areas these people are fleeing from, as uh, as Crete is and uh, some of the other islands uh, the, that they arrived at?
1: I don't think Sicily is quite as close, and it depends on where people are coming from. The people who ended up in Greece were generally coming from Turkey. Mm-hmm. And in Italy, we're talking more about people coming from North Africa. And um, when you, if you're on Lesvos Island, for example, in Greece, which is one of the Aegean islands, you can literally see... Turkey. And that's true of a number of those islands. So it is a very, um, it seems like it's a very accessible way to get into Europe.
0: Now, why were they leaving Turkey? Uh, Couldn't Turkey have housed them?
1: Well, Turkey has absorbed huge numbers of refugees especially from Syria um, but most of those people don't have a right to work there and so as I describe in my book I I, I have um, I follow seven stories in the book and weave them together and one of the one of the stories um, of a family they they arrived in Turkey thinking they would stay there until the war in Syria ended and then they could go home and they got to Turkey and the only ones who were allowed to work in the family were their two little girls working in a sweat shop. And so they had the feeling that Turkey was pushing them towards Europe.
0: What about some of the other countries involved, Libya and Tunisia? Could they have housed these people? Wasn't Libya going through a a crisis of its own at the time?
1: Yeah, I think I think I mean, people are looking for safety and and Europe is definitely um, a continent that feels safer than some of these other places. They're also looking for a way to support their families. And and um, Europe offers that also, although it's obviously very challenging.
0: So they were going by boat. Why were some of them drowning? What kinds of boats were they going on?
1: Uh, They were going a lot of them were going on the little rubber dinghies you've seen photos of um, in the media and um, they were way overloaded. And if the weather turned bad, they could flip or people could fall out. Um, But then also there were there were larger, more sturdy looking wooden boats. But those boats were also not in good shape. And I tell a story or several stories of these wooden boats. And one of them um, was. It, it hit rocky ground way far out, and water started coming in. And um, that was one of, I mean, I think 50 or 60 people drowned mm. um, because they were trapped inside the hull of this boat. And usually they would put women and children down in that hull because that seemed like the safest place, and they were the ones who would drown. So they weren't putting people on the ocean liners generally or the, the, the more solid craft.
0: And what were they fleeing from? You say unrest in their home countries. Uh, well,
1: yeah. I mean, for the most part, the the, the people that I write about in my book, um, which is covers time from like twenty fifteen to twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, were mostly fleeing the war in Syria, and other people were fleeing conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, repression in Iran. And there's increasing numbers of people from African countries who are fleeing conflicts there and also climate change and their inability to provide for their, their families anymore if they're farmers and that sort of thing.
0: So some of them were from sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, can I assume that race played a part in some of these stories?
1: In my book, for the most part, um, I'm writing about people who come from Middle Eastern countries. But in my, in my work that, um, with the nonprofit that I co-founded, Humanity Now, we're seeing more and more uh, people from African countries coming. And um, I mean, they, they leave their homes for lots of reasons, but uh, they end up in the same place and then try to, you know, they're, they're all trying to make it. But they, there is a kind of a hierarchy of who might get asylum and who might not based on where you come from.
0: The people who reached land needed food, clothing, medicine, and shelter. Um, But the story you tell here is about how the international aid system broke down. Why?
1: Well, part of it was that this was really the first time a major event like this had happened in Europe since the end of World War II. And the United Nations was not prepared to offer aid in that region i mean i think they felt like europe should be able to take care of itself so that was that was a part of it and then i think um there were also crises in other parts of the world that were distracting them and i guess just inefficiencies and inability to figure out how to deal with a political situation as well as a humanitarian situation i mean the 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 governments of europe um, couldn't agree with each other about how many people to allow into the to, into their country or into the continents there was a lot of of controversy and a lot of p- political bickering and it ended up having an effect on the aid effort
0: well the, we're we're not seeing something similar happening now with the ukrainian refugees is that because they're europeans <laughs>
1: I mean, that's that's a question that a lot of people in the humanitarian world are are asking. Um, you could you could say it's for a lot of reasons. I mean, they they are generally. Uh, Europeans. We, um, my aid team has been helping in, um, Poland as well. And, and we're seeing that a lot of the people that really need help now are from marginalized communities. Um, so they're not the, they're not the Ukrainian citizens, the mothers and children that we're seeing mostly crossing, but they're smaller minority groups. Um, maybe African students who were in Ukraine and are displaced or um, ro- people from the Roma community who are not as welcome in other parts of Europe, LGBTQ um, pe- people who are maybe from the Middle East and had ended up in Ukraine and then they're, they're displaced for a second time. Hmm. So those people are more difficult to um, house. I mean, they have they have more trouble finding the things they need, I think, in general than than um, the Ukrainian the sort of typical Ukrainian refugees that we see.
0: You said that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees was unprepared. What about some of the other uh, people we would have assumed would have come to the aid of these refugees? The International Committee of the Red Cross and Mm -hmm. and the European Union.
1: The European Union allocated a lot of money for this crisis, but it wasn't used effectively. Um, and and you I mean, say it you was used
0: the, inefficiently.
1: Yes. In, inefficiently. Or I mean, I, I the way I'm, I describe it is this. I am telling a story about a house that was burning down and I am describing how the fire trucks didn't come and so the neighbors, that's the grassroots volunteers, had to do what they could to help the people that were in the house. I can't tell you exactly why the fire trucks could, didn't come, and I, 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 there are many reasons why the house was burning down, but the, the problem was the thing that we expect to see, which is a large and effective humanitarian aid effort, was not on the ground, especially in 2015 and, and the beginning of 2016. And because of that... a a grassroots aid effort mobilized. This is individuals starting out with Greek citizens and villagers who brought sandwiches to the beaches and pulled people out of the water, and then people who saw it on the news and came from other countries, and also refugees themselves who were mobilizing to help their own communities. And to a large extent in 2015 and the beginning of 2016, that was the aid effort. And that's what I was writing about in my book. That's not what we expect to see when there's a world crisis like what was happening then.
0: Well, they say, they argue that they were unprepared, uh, but they must have seen that there were problems in these home countries. Uh, did they just yeah. simply ignore them or assume that they would be resolved Back in the Middle East and uh, in in parts of Africa,
1: I mean, I think w- w- there are so many times we can ask ourselves what what political leaders or or international organization leaders are thinking. I, I mean, sometimes they probably put maybe put blinders on and just hope for the best and hope this thing won't happen, and then it does happen eventually. I mean, when I I, I interviewed some some officials from the United Nations for my book, and they said. There should have been preparation well in advance of this, and there wasn't.
0: What about Greece? Were the, was the Greek government equipped to handle such a huge problem?
1: no greece was going through its own severe economic crisis which you've also probably heard of and um, they just didn't have the money and the resources and so they did receive as i said funding from the european union to to help in this effort but for the most part greece was seen both by the the migrants and refugees themselves and by um, the greek government as a transit country so a country that people would arrive in, that would be the first place they set foot in Europe, and then they would continue on to wealthier countries Farther north, and as long as it was a transit country, it worked okay. At least for the for for Greece as a as a country, but w- when the borders closed because the European Union did not want so many people coming farther north in you in Europe. So in 2016, the borders closed, and then Greece stopped being a transit country and started being kind of a holding country for tens of thousands of people who had already arrived on those little boats but couldn't move farther. north north.
0: So wasn't finding housing for the refugees uh, a major problem?
1: Yes. I mean, I don't know that there was such a strong effort to find housing. There, were, there was an effort to put them places.
0: Well, so, right now in New York, we're talking about tent cities.
1: That's what I'm talking about, too. Exactly. Tent cities. And um, that's not a that's not a, a humanitarian solution, particularly when people live there for long periods of time. And that's what you're seeing in New York and that's what we saw all over Greece for a long time.
0: But didn't the Red Cross publish an article on its website with the title Red Cross Helps as Refugees Flee Homeland? Uh, they claimed A Red Cross reception center on the Greek island of Lesbos was providing assistance for 1,500 to 2,000 refugees each day. Was that not true or was that just an inadequate response?
1: Um, It's hard to say. I wasn't there at that time. The people that the people that were on the ground were look that I know they were looking for the Red Cross and they didn't really, they didn't see them. I mean, it's possible that the Red Cross was offering aid in sort of indirect ways, but I think that they, from the research that I did demonstrated that they were, they were declaring more success than they were actually, you know, capable of, of, um, creating, you know, they just didn't, they were not very effective.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Dana Sachs, whose latest book is All Else Failed. The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis is published by Bellevue Literary Press. Um, And um, people started arriving, you said, uh, volunteers arrived to help. Where were they from?
1: They were from all over. I write about um, Jenny James who came from New Zealand and Tracy Myers who came from Northern England and Conwal Malik who also came from England and I met people from from Spain and Italy and Norway, I mean all over all over Europe but also the United States. And these are people who might have had some professional experience like as social workers or something, but often they just read about what was happening and they heard about this grassroots effort that was was forming, and they thought, I think I can go over there and help. And and so, I mean, that's what I did the first time I got involved. I just, I heard a friend of mine told me that she was going over to deliver aid at Edomini camp up in northern Greece for, for 10 days. And, um, I said, I had already been writing about, um, refugees in my, in my previous work and I was really interested to see what was happening. So I said, can I go with you? And we went and we served soup and we distributed clothing and, Um, We just did. We worked in a warehouse. We did whatever we could do. Um, And that's basically how a lot of the aid effort was functioning. It was people like us who just happened to show up and help where they could. There were sign up sheets in a in a little like like roadside motel. And it said, can you deliver bananas and tea this morning to families with children? And if you wanted to, you would just sign up and you'd show up and you would do it.
0: And who is supplying the bananas and tea?
1: it was crowdfunding for the most part it wasn't it wasn't large international aid organizations it was these very tiny aid teams Um, that had, had basically founded themselves, a a group of people would get together and they would send out on their own social media, we're, we're cooking dinner five nights a week in this camp. We need money to buy supplies, send it to us. And, and people, the word spread. I mean, they were one of the, one of the people in my book, I call him Ibrahim. He's actually a refugee himself, became one of the people who was very, um, Central to the financing, and people would bring him, you know, five thousand euros, and he would use it to buy um, to pay the baker, a local baker who was um, supplying disks of bread, and then the and then the volunteers would take that bread and they would deliver it to the camp.
0: But he often faced criticism. Why?
1: Oh, because it was, there was, things went wrong all the time. Um, He, you know, I asked him at one point after the, you know, a a couple of years after this real serious crisis, like, did you make mistakes? Tell me about, and he tell me about mistakes that you made and he said, "Of course, I made mistakes. How big do you want me to tell you of the mistakes? Mm-hmm. I mean, these were people that were way over their head, and they were doing this work because there was really nobody else to do it. If, as Tracy Myers, who I interviewed, and she's the she's the um, uh, British activist and social worker, she." Um, I said to her did you ever feel like it was weird that you were the one who was doing this work and she said every single day but i had to be there because i felt like if i wasn't there nobody would be there and especially down on the islands if people weren't there at, at on the beaches to help people get out of the boats when they arrived then they would drown and they did drown and so they needed to have these rescue teams and these beach You know, these these people standing on the beaches or or looking out with binoculars towards the boats because because people were drowning and it was they were trying to save lives.
0: But weren't you mostly in a ramshackle district of Athens?
1: I I was um, when I first went, I was in northern northern Greece at the camp called Idomene. But um, after the borders closed, Idomene had at one point I think almost twenty thousand people sleeping in tents in a rural field, just sleeping in the mud. And then finally the European Union and the Greek government decided to shut that camp and they and they moved people to these what they called official camps that they had like established all over northern Greece. And these camps were just as horrible. I mean, they were putting people in old warehouses, a a derelict toilet paper factory, a tanning factory, places that were not fit for humans to live in. And some people stayed there and some people left and went down to Athens. And in Athens, um, a group of like anarchists and activists started breaking into empty buildings there and opening them up as squat communities for the refugees. And so there were a number of them across the city. Um, I, you, you might wonder, because if somebody did that in New York City, it wouldn't last very long. But mm-hmm. I think that the Greek government saw that there was such a crisis of shelter, as, as you mentioned, Leonard, that that they turned, they turned the other way. They, they closed their eyes to it. And so there were um, I visited um, several old schools that had been shut down, so they were no longer used as schools by by Greek children. They were just um, empty buildings. Several old schools, an office building, um, a commissary for the university, a lot of old buildings, old an old apartment building that had been empty, and these activists had repurposed them into um, housing accommodation for for refugees. And I cannot say it was nice. Like in the schools, it was um, there were no showers. So people were basically bathing in the sinks. So the floors were flooded and there were um, people were sleeping in tents, again, in tents, but at least with a roof over your head. Um, in the classrooms, and um, food was always a problem. Um, but it was a community. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a utopian community. But it was a community that was functioning on some level and better than the camps.
0: And you mentioned the British volunteer Tracy Myers. Uh, yes. You report that she received a request at four a.m. from. Uh, A staffer at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees asking, can you house this Afghan family? (laughs) She's getting a call at four in the morning from one of the biggest humanitarian agencies on the planet asking her to help.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why it was it was just it was crazy sometimes. And this this happened a lot. And I mean, I will say that whoever it was from the UN who was calling her was a person who was also a humanitarian person because they knew that there was no line item in their budget for housing an Afghan family for whatever reason. They didn't have it. And they knew that if they called a grassroots volunteer, that the grassroots volunteer had the flexibility and perhaps the capacity to try to make something happen because they weren't rule bound. For better and sometimes for worse, they were not rule bound in the same way that these large organizations were. And so in that sense, I mean, it is horrible to think about it, but you can also sort of say that that was a a moment of collaboration and success, even though it should not be functioning that way. But it was a good thing that they were working together because hopefully that Afghan family had a place to sleep that night.
0: You also mentioned a Syrian mother of six and a Jill of all trades from New Zealand. Did all of these volunteers know each other?
1: A lot of them did. Um, So they were working uh,
0: hand in hand?
1: Yes. Yes. It was a real, a real community. I mean, people even now... um, people have, some of these people have been reading my books and my book and they'll say oh i knew those people because it's not it's you know several hundred people scattered across greece maybe sometimes more sometimes less but the long term volunteers really came to know each other and admire each other and and sometimes criticize each other as well. And I'll say also that, that they really used social media as a way to network with each other. So they were following each other on Facebook and, and huh. um, following each other on Instagram. And so they kind of had an idea of what was going on. But then they also, in person, were often working together.
0: You can only wonder what it would have been like before there were all of those uh, ways of connecting through social media.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my guess is that this couldn't have happened because so much of the funding came in through, through, you know, Facebook fundraisers and you fund me and it still does. And, um, it, it, I mean, crowdsourcing and people, people can help each other more easily when they have this way of knowing what's going on and they can get money, um, to the places they need to get it more easily. So I, I imagine that that this couldn't it couldn't have happened in such an extensive way without it
0: didn't one of the volunteers tell you that she'd experienced troubles with the immigration system herself so she had empathy for the experiences of the Syrians Afghans and others who'd wound up yeah. in that yeah. great camp
1: right i mean i think everybody everybody brings to all all the volunteers bring their own reasons their own sort of different um, very particular reasons to why they would do something like go move to Greece and, and spend months or even years there. Um, uh, these uh, tra- I write about these two women, Tracy Myers and Jenny James, who were friends before, and Jenny was from New Zealand, and she had some problems with the um, British Um, I won't, she wasn't, she was just um, a tourist, but she had trouble with her passport and, and um, was very worried about whether she'd be able to continue to travel. And um, that sort of showed these two young white women that how difficult it would be um, if they were, if they were from countries where their passport was meaningless you know, so I think that gave them that, that sort of gave them a sense of, of the, the horror of not being able to move um, to safety when you need to.
0: Were they able to achieve things that the uh, official groups were not, like finding uh, apartments to house some of these people because uh, the hotels were all already taken up?
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes the thing about
0: alternative housing,
1: Yeah, I would say that the, the squats that I described, those 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 old schools that had been repurposed to become illegal housing that I would say that that was that was successful, although. Uh, It had a lot of problems, which I write about a lot of problems in those places as well um, with crime. And um, they just they weren't very safe for women. Um, But, yeah, I mean, they they weren't operating, as I said before, they weren't operating by all the rules that those large organizations operate by. And sometimes those rules are really good because they protect people. They protect workers. They they have things like the nine to five, you know, the, the work week that keeps you from burning out but they but these small grassroots aid teams had a kind of like flexibility and um nimbleness that there's no way you could see with some of the really large organizations
0: were were there conflicts and, and tensions between the uh, the professionals and the amateurs?
1: Yeah, there were sometimes. Sometimes they worked together surprisingly well. I like like we were just talking about the, the phone call at 4 a.m. There's something kind of good about that. Um, and sometimes uh, they they did not work well together because there was um, I would say there could be a kind of suspicion on both sides of uh, maybe from the side of the large organizations that the you know, the international aid organizations maybe a suspicion that the volunteers weren't capable or didn't have the professionalism or didn't know what they were doing, all of which could be true. And then on the volunteer side, a sense that the, that the professional, um, like the, the staffers of large organizations, um, were disconnected from the reality of what was going on on the ground and, and were just, you know, um, you know, doing their job and didn't care so much. And I think I think none of that is completely true. And all of it is, you know, has some truth to it.
0: There were acts of bravery here. Didn't some of these volunteers jump into the water and save people from drowning?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my book starts with with these two women, um, Tracy and Jenny on the beach in Lesvos and they're 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 seeing a boat start to sink and they they have their binoculars and they're they're watching and they're worried and then they realize if they don't go out there and help um people are going to drown so they just they jumped in the water and they pulled people in and, and i should say you know sometimes people who hear about the you know hear these stories of of um these volunteers will say oh my goodness this person's a hero they're so brave and i would say they were brave and i think a lot of the work was heroic but but they were also afraid they were also normal people who were who were scared and um, jenny was not a swimmer and even though she was not a swimmer she still went out into the water and helped pull people in and and they saved lives
0: you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. When home is the belly of the beast, the ocean, ocean is wide,
1: and, all your head, head. and the boat beneath you is sinking. Don't need a
0: you're enjoying my conversation with Dana Sachs. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, All Else Failed. Just go online to give2wbai.org to or Call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation, the name of one that at large. And um, since this is Women's History Month, we have uh, another offer. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's uh, a 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. And they've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, just ask for the Women's History Collection when you call That same number, 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Low Paid at Large as your favorite show. And I return now to Dana Sachs, who's a journalist activist, co-founder of Humanity Now, Direct Refugee Relief, a U.S.-based nonprofit that raises money to fund grassroots aid projects aimed at helping improve the lives of the displaced people who wound um, up in Greece. Uh, and She's written a number of other books. Uh, and uh, you've written a bit about Vietnam. How did Vietnam—was there any connection between your past experiences with Vietnam and Vietnamese literature and what you're writing about here, or is it just coincidental?
1: Uh, sure, there is. And I, I have to mention that I was actually, you interviewed me when my last nonfiction book came out, um, The Life We Were Given, about Operation Babylift, mm-hmm. the airlift out of Vietnam, and um, which was really enjoyable. Thank you for doing that. That um, was
0: in 2010, a while
1: ago. Uh, yes, exactly, a while ago. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, in answer to your question, I think for sure uh, the the work I've done related to Vietnam has taught me a lot about um, how people are affected by war and um, what displacement does to people's lives and also um, what displacement does to a receiving country I mean I've I've, I've paid a lot of attention to the uh, the Vietnamese refugee crisis and how that affected our culture here in the United States and I think that um, watching watching how for example in one generation um, a, a new refugee might be um, busing tables in a restaurant and then their children go to medical school um, those kinds of stories uh, I know that Vietnamese have a maybe particular reputation for being capable of that and um, and also a lot of the Vietnamese refugees who were educated when they came, but I think that those stories are really important for us to remember because, um, immigrants bring so much to our society. We benefit in so many ways. I mean, if you go out and have FUD, a Vietnamese restaurant in the United States, you're benefiting from the refugee crisis and, and from the fact that we have absorbed a culture of people and, um. I just uh, I feel like movements of people are not not always only negative. I mean, they are heartbreaking for the people who have to leave their homes and they can be disruptive for those of us who live in cultures where it's, you know, changing our society. But I personally believe that it has been a real good for our country. And 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 I also think that um, We need we need immigrants. I mean, we and Europe needs immigrants. They these are aging populations and they need workers and refugees and immigrants are the ones who who got themselves out of trouble. And they're the hard workers and they're the ones who can make it happen. So um, I think I bring I bring what I learned from Vietnam in many ways Mm. to this story.
0: Well, this story uh, begins in 2015. So we're talking about uh, eight years ago. Um, What do we know about the refugees now? Have uh, most of them been able to settle down and find homes or are are they still experiencing problems?
1: Well, the answer is both. I mean, I... the nonprofit that I co-founded, Humanity Now, goes back to Greece and also now to Poland to work with um, refugees fleeing Ukraine as well. So, so we're seeing we're seeing the new the newer generations of, of ref, refugees who are oh, sleeping in tents or sleeping in camps and you know, really, really struggling. But because I've been focusing on this for such a long time, I also am, am watching some of the refugees, even the people that I write about in, in my, my book, um, who have now resettled. And I, I tell the story of this family I call the Khalil. And you first, the Khalil family, you first see them in, in Syria, you know, trying to survive the bombs. And then I followed them as they as they made their way out of Syria and into Turkey. And the story, I, I when I mentioned earlier that, that some of these people are finding that the only ones in their family who can work are the children. These two little girls in this family were, were made, they had to work in a t-shirt factory, you know, making the kinds of t-shirts that we buy cheap in our in our own cultures. Um, anyway, they, they made it to Greece and they stayed in Greece for like 18 months and um, lived in tents and eventually got to Germany. And I just visited them in, in Germany a few weeks ago. And um, the two little girls girls that were working in the factory are both in school now and training to training for the medical, medical professions. And, um, you know, they, they're there, they reestablished their lives. And, um, I'm not saying that everyone is a is a happy story, but I'm seeing incredible things from the people that I've gotten to know. Another, another um, refugee that I write about in my book, I call him Sammy. I, I changed the names of the refugees. Um, I call him Sammy, and he arrived in Athens with literally not enough money to buy a cup of coffee. Nothing. He was a young man. And um, he was sleeping on the floor in one of these illegal accommodations, but he could speak a little bit of English and he was educated and he became a volunteer in that um, illegal accommodation, just helping the other men around him. It was all single men and he would take them to medical appointments or he would help them to find, um, you know, a lawyer because he could get, he could get by a little bit and little by little he was able to establish um, contacts and, and relationships in Athens. These days, he runs a very well-respected youth community center for displaced people in Athens. And he went from nothing to being one of the leaders in this community. And And he, his story is amazing and so impressive, but it's not that unusual. I mean, I'm seeing so many people who arrive as refugees um, going on to really lead very full, rich lives.
0: Well, this story begins in 2015, but it continued for a number of years to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. Was anything learned along the way that made it the, the, the subsequent years a little easier to, to deal with?
1: Um, you mean by the governments? and? Well, by, by,
0: by all the different people involved. Yeah. Was it still a volunteer situation in 2016 and 2017?
1: Yeah, yeah, it still is even now. I mean, I mean there are it's professionalized a bit. A lot of these organizations that started out as just, you know, people jumping in and doing what they could have evolved into um some quite well-established nonprofits that um we're seeing functioning very well. Other ones fell apart or other ones people said um, I've had enough. I'm I'm burned out. I'm going back to my country, or I'm going to do some other job where I can just get a paycheck, you know. Um, but I I am seeing a um, in a, a a professionalization of the grassroots aid movement, which is um, able to maintain this kind of nimble ability to, to respond to respond to crises but also professionalized in a way that um, can be sustainable because if it's not somewhat professional it's not sus- sustainable for the mental health of the people involved and it's it's not sustainable financially and so I think I think that um, a number of people who started out as grassroots aid workers are taking the skills that they learned in the that work and trying to build new nonprofit profits that utilize the, the strengths of both the you know large international aid organizations and the smaller ones.
0: But you That's right,
1: the best we can see. If, but you're
0: right you write that know. in the end the volunteer efforts were only partly successful because the situation required professionals.
1: Absolutely. It required professionals and it requires government and international assistance you know i mean i'm i i have this small nonprofit and we can do really effective work by putting $2000 into this pharmacy and that'll pay for the pharmaceuticals in a camp for a month or some other you know buying a refrigerator for a soup kitchen all those things are fantastic and really important but it doesn't replace the concerted large scale generosity that we need from governments and society and our institutions. We need both.
0: You write, I'm quoting, Some long-term volunteers decided that close relationships with refugees drain them emotionally and mm-hmm. compromise their effectiveness.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think some people felt like uh, that's a kind of professionalism, isn't it? Um, Saying I can't get close to these people because it will it will drain me emotionally. And if I want to keep myself strong and able to do this work, then I need to keep a distance. And that's definitely what some people decided to do. And we're talking about that, that example was really in the midst of enormous crisis when people really were literally like drowning um in the in the aegean not that they're they still are now but it's not it's it's not to the same numbers they're still coming to greece they are oh yeah the numbers are growing again um It's very controversial because there's something that is called pushbacks, which is basically um, it's an allegation that the Greek government and the Frontex, which is the the European border guard in the in the ocean, is pushing back boats back to Turkey. Um, It's basically like the governments have. A lot more control than we think about who who arrives and who doesn't. If Turkey doesn't really want people to leave Turkey, then that the faucet turns off. And if they want people to leave Turkey, then the faucet turns back on. And um, there's a lot of people pulling strings to sort of control these movements of individual people. I'm focused on the families, but um, they are. They are really um, almost like the puppets of 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 the decisions made by people in governments.
0: So is your book the story not only of the successes, but also of the failures?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a book about the results of the failures. I'd like to say that this is a book about um, how how the the people we expect to be there in a time of crisis were not there. And so other people saw the need and stepped forward to help. So it's a book about individual um, commitment and resilience, and the ways that we can help each other. I mean, I really believe that. Um, I feel inspired by the the resourcefulness and the determination um, of these people, and I also I also feel that that volunteerism is often described as something you do because you should and it's the good thing to do or you do it out of guilt but what i see is that participating in in a situation where other people need help elevates the individual who is who is providing the help and it brings a kind of meaning into their lives um that is really, really valuable. And for the refugees who got involved, these are people who have lost everything and finding that they can be helpful to others brings them dignity and helps them get back on their feet and gives them a purpose. So it is good on many levels. um, And I want I hope that by reading this book, people will start to see that it's not just something that you should do. And I don't even want to say you should do it. Maybe it's not for you, but that it's something that can bring real benefit into the lives of the people who participate in a situation like this.
0: Have any of these refugees wound up in the United States?
1: Um, the refugees that I write about because they arrived in Europe, they're in the European system. And so, um, they, their resettlement is, is for the most part going to be in Europe unless, you know, I don't, I don't know if people specifically who have ended up in the United States, although I'm not saying there's nobody.
0: In the end, uh, Ibrahim a refugee volunteer says that finger pointing isn't the answer. Yeah. Well, right. but if if we don't finger point, then uh, didn't the all the, the organizations we expected to come through but didn't, uh, don't they escape without any criticism?
1: Yeah. I mean, the place where I land is 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 to say that. We definitely need stronger systems. And this book demonstrates that the systems are are not strong enough and that there's enormous problems. But it doesn't it's not enough to just say they have to get better because they might not or they might. You know, it's I don't have I don't have any power or control over that. I I think it's important to criticize when there's reason to reason for it and I'm I'm doing that but I really feel like it's also important for us to look at ourselves as individuals and think about the ways that we can get involved and and you know feel motivated to help ourselves it's not enough to just have one or the other we need both
0: has this situation been largely forgotten because of what's happened with the ukraine and have we learned anything from what happened there does it matter that the ukrainian refugees are all europeans and that the villain in this the current story is vladimir putin
1: well it certainly is a it's i would say it's a, it's a simpler story to tell it's um seems to be evoking um a a broader compassion maybe than the, than the story we get in Greece these days. I sort of feel like um, we have to wait and see because there's something called compassion fatigue and people get tired of the fact that other people are in need, but people remain in need for a long time and they can't change that. So i in Greece. What we're seeing is like five years down the line. There's a real serious Aren't we done with this yet? Kind of feeling. Has an you know?
0: assimilation occurred at all?
1: Um, I think so. I mean, I think I. I've noticed, like for example, when I went to to Germany and visited my Syrian friends there, there they have some a couple of new younger children, and those children speak German better than they speak Arabic. So,
0: mm.
1: for sure, for sure. You're, I mean, we see that in this country too. Um. So, yeah, and they are going in, into the school system there. So they're learning. They're 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 German, um, but they're also they're German Germans of Syrian descent. And and that's a part of their culture, too.
0: Dana, we're pretty much out of time. Is there anything you want to add in the minute that we have left?
1: Well, I'm going to be at McNally Jackson, Jackson Seaport um, in discussion with my sister Lynn Sachs on um, March 30th. So if any New York people want to come and and continue this talk about um, these issues, it would be it'd be wonderful.
0: Meanwhile, we have this book that on the cover. There's a, a, a looks like a rubber raft that's just, just filled with way too many people.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I assume that occurred quite a bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, peop- the people that I have interviewed, most of them came over on boats like that, and the stories they tell me are harrowing because there's nothing to protect you. When you, when you look at this picture and you see the water all around this boat, um, yeah, I mean, people drowned, and that's the fact.
0: Dana Sachs, her book, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers. At the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis, published by Bellevue Literary Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the show coming to weekdays from W from 1 to 2 p.m. In fact, to keep the station coming to you because we've been going through some severe economic difficulties as a result of the pandemic. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbaiorg right now and becoming a supporter. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Topate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, All Else Failed by Dana Sachs. So why not make that call right now at 212 209 2950 or go online to give to wbai.org. And we also uh, hope that you might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. For 10, 15, 25, or however much you feel comfortable a month. And that allows us to plan for the future, and you can do that until you decide to uh, stop. And if you become a sustaining member for $10 or more, we'll be happy to send you a WBAI tote bag. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more, or make a $100 contribution to the station, you can receive. The Women's History Collection is our gift to you during this Women's History Month. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that have been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950. Or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy, but locate at large as your favorite show. I hope you call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. We're the only station in New York Radio Dell that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support by going online to give to WVAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Now, I hate to close the show on a down note, but uh, it gives me great sadness to report that Barbara Kahn, a wonderful ceramicist, gardener, and contributor to my show for over 30 years, passed away last Friday. She was a wonderful person, and she will be sorely missed. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when Dr. Adam Rutherford will discuss his new book, Control: The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. See you then.